0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail. Companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons, and I believe this should stop. And hence, I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold: first, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Dan Hubert, founder and CEO of EpiWay.
1: I pitched it to a load of the all the parking departments of London and they looked at me like I was a lunatic. Yeah. Basically, their business is to make money or to manage parking enforcement officers and make money from enforcement. And I was the guy coming along trying to go, here's data to create better information to make sure people can get to the destination without being fined and reduce pollution. And at that meeting, there was a guy from BT. He was in charge of the fleet there, and it's a big fleet, it's 40,000 fleets, so not a small job, 8,000 operating in London. And he had a £3.6 million parking problem in London. And he said, can I have your data into my system, please? Because this would help my drivers. I was like, here's the opportunity. This is them.
0: He initially founded Epi Parking after experiencing firsthand the pain of parking caused by a fragmented and broken market when trying to park near the Royal Albert Hall for a concert. From this the EpiParking mobile app was born, but more questions quickly arose. Dan was asking out loud what if we could digitize parking spaces, and not just spaces, but all of the UK's curbs. What opportunities would that unlock? How could a digitized, dynamic curb not only meet the ever-growing demands of urban transport today, but shape that of tomorrow? From that lightbulb moment onwards, Dan was hooked. He became unashamedly curb-obsessed and founded EpiWay as a startup that's on a mission to lead the charts to help cities thrive from the curb up. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Dan to my podcast. We explore what is broken in the world of parking, then shares his vision about how to make the curbside a value driver and turn it into a positive revenue engine that benefits all of us. He shared how incredibly hard it was to create momentum and what he has done to create breakthroughs, momentum, and secure defensible differentiation for his business. Last but not least, he shares his advice on what it takes to create a SaaS business that the world will talk about and will keep talking about. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly how meaningful value can be created if we do the opposite of the norm and break the pattern. Secondly, that extremely valuable innovation ideas are often right in front of us. We just need to develop an eye to spot it. Thirdly, how to win governmental authorities to champion your idea and help realize it, even though they appear to be the biggest blogger at first sight. And fourthly, that momentum sparks when we start telling stories and paint a visual picture of what can be. So, hi, Dan. Thank you for making the time available today and being a guest on the podcast.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. And I'm not sure actually how I picked up on what you did, but uh, yeah, somehow I entered, I like, bumped into your website. I think it was through an email that I got, Happy way, I got fascinated, yeah, with your fascination, with curbsides. And that's where I had to connect to you and yeah, hear about the story. Before we start and we'll talk about the startup or the business that you've been building up since 2012, A little bit about you, if you had to describe yourself as an entrepreneur, what would be two or three characteristics that come up?
1: I think it's not afraid of a challenge, not afraid of a big problem, and trying to remain on the outside calm and collected, because I think ultimately an entrepreneur needs an army to support them, and you need to instill the faith in the people who are supporting you, so you just have to sort of play it cool. Behind the scenes, you can be flapping like hell, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but generally with a steady head, you can kind of get places.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, a really good one. I haven't heard about those two before. I mean, people might have them in mind, but to, like, to speak them out, well, to kind of bring them to the forefront. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, connecting that, not afraid of a challenge. I think that's a fantastic bridge to the business that you've been building, which at the end is like getting every curbside in the UK and possibly around the world into a visual environment or a database starting on your bike a couple of years ago so what did you see what was a big problem that you experienced that was screaming for a problem
1: well I live in London lived here you know for most of my adult life and I drive and experience the pain like billions of people across the world do and they're all asking the same questions which is where can I park, which is information about the destination. They're going, is it free, which is about availability. And then they go, can I pay? And those three real questions, if you dissect it, are very different industries within the parking sector. And they're split between local governments, public and private sector. So trying to get those three questions answered by one API is was impossible. So for me, the ambition was always to make parking forgettable, which was a hugely audacious statement. But it really sort of set the bar in terms of sort of our aspiration and ultimately to make parking forgettable for every person in the world. That's an incredibly powerful thing to do because we can all then get on with our lives because of the consequence of bad information from economical and environmental perspective. And then obviously it opens up the door into EV because every EV is highly dependent on the infrastructure of the curbside for supply and demand. You don't need millions of plug points. You just need better supply and demand information between the two. And then ultimately going into connected autonomous vehicles, you know we have level five robots, extremely expensive machines, who are going to be extremely stupid at the curbside because of the complexity. And what we've seen by processing the, the UK's curbside is there are 110,000 different edge cases at the curbside at the moment. So that's just in the UK. So you have 110,000 chances of getting a parking ticket just with one session. So if you can get a binary yes or no from the data set, then you have then unlocked the sort of the gateway into mobility and allowing sort of, you know, vehicles to become linked into sort of more integral part of transport. So right now, that, the curbside will always become the blocker.
0: Wow. What a story. I mean, and what a challenge. And then to start, you know, and of course, you started small, you started in London. But yeah, And I really love the tagline or the promise, making parking forgettable. That's what I think what everybody
1: wants. Because indeed,
0: it's a challenge. Every time you go somewhere, it's like, where am I going to kind of park this freaking vehicle?
1: (laughs) People, the two things everyone talks about in the world is the weather and parking when you first meet someone. (laughs) So if you can, we can't change the weather (laughs) unless you spray concrete in the air. But here we can be more sustainable and do that via data.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you already kind of touched upon the opportunity if we get this right. just getting, first of all, getting rid of the frustration But what will this do economically? Can we get our head around that? I mean, what is the, what, I mean, that incredible waste that you already talked about?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the UK, you know, for the UK public sector to manage the curbside, there's 408 authorities. And that collective capital expenditure and operational is a billion pounds just between 408 local authorities. So it's taxpayers' money going into an analog process using outdated regulation from 1986. So it's nothing's changed since then, right? <laughs> well, a lot has changed since then, but the regulation hasn't. So digital transformation within the public sector is unbelievable, especially at a time where, you know, they're pumping money into sort of COVID funds and the austerity measures for public sector and how to become smarter and leaner and meaner, use better data, for insights and intelligence to make the curbside into a value driver, make it into a positive revenue engine. So the opportunity there is infinite, right? Because it's right now that people are making money out of parking enforcement, and the more enforcement you put on the streets, the more money you make. But it's an ineffective, it's an ineffective system because cities should be selling compliance. And compliance really then opens up optimization and decarbonization. And so, really, there's a huge opportunity there for the public sector to kind of get on this bandwagon quicker. And then if you look at sort of fleets and logistics, you know, the cost that goes into vehicles aimlessly driving around, getting parking tickets. I think there's a report from Inrix, which was the value of driving less. There's 18 times more is the value that you have on information for people to get to the destination quicker than the current parking industry that is already a trillion dollar sort of industry across the world. So it's a huge opportunity. And really, we want to get into sort of the unique economics of a parking bay. Cities don't know how much it costs to manage that one particular bay. But Really, we want to get to sort of like that calculator where it basically goes, it costs this for using digital transformation, it costs this, uh, this much less, earns you this much more. So, getting sort of unit economics, which cities struggle very hard because of, sort of the lack of data and there's different departments doing different things. Yeah.
0: Well, it brings me at the end to another thing like, well, is there an owner of the problem? Because, I mean, the problem is possibly bigger for businesses <laughs> or the government, still, you know, you can't do anything about it.
1: Everyone passes the problem of parking on to the driver. The cities just make a rule and then expect people to manage with it. The car manufacturers sell you a luxury vehicle, but it's exactly it's the same the parking as the cheapest car. And so the problem is always passed on to the driver. And we have it's like Stockholm syndrome. We, we're all expected just to take it in the chin, get punched in the stomach and go, yeah, that's cool. We're just being fined and we're just like, you know, burning fuel and I don't want to buy an EV vehicle. So, you know, the cities will always own their infrastructure. So allowing them to own a digital self is really important. And so I think the more we kind of go into the future, and the more it's less car ownership and more more car usership. And so therefore it's fleets and cities. There's got to be a better relationship between the two. And ultimately, it should be about the infrastructure being smart, telling the vehicles what to do, like an air traffic control analogy rather than vehicles just hazardly driving around, opportunistically trying to pull over, causing chaos to the streets, which they have no choice right now. They would much rather buy into compliance rather than sort of dodge enforcement. So it's the city's role, but to do it to the city level is asking too much. It needs to become sort of a higher level in terms of like a country, a, a government sort of taking it on and owning that.
0: Yeah. Tell me, I mean, when you got the idea, what sparked it? When did you... Say so, okay, now I'm gonna do this. And how did that? I mean, share the anecdotes about how this really started. Well, they always say from a garage, but <laughs>
1: yeah, it started from my bedroom over there. So yeah, one of those. Yeah. So I, was, I one time I live in Camden. There's it turns out I didn't know at the time. There's 53 unique parking zones all within the borough of Camden, and there's you know thousands of zones across the whole of London. London's 14,000 kilometres restricted road network. So it's hugely restricted. And as I said, every metre can be a different regulation, which means you can get a ticket from one foot to the next. So it's that complex. So yeah, one time I stopped outside a shop. It was 11pm on a Sunday. I got a parking ticket when I parked on a yellow line. And the yellow line in the UK means generally it's after 6.30, you can park there. And so I was like, how is this? You know, I just just assumed that this one piece of uh, paint was the same everywhere. And that wasn't the case. And then I went and came to see a concert once, and I was running late. And again, there was a single yellow line right outside the entrance of the concert hall, and everywhere else was full. And I was like, well, and I thought, well, if I could know what that piece of information is—that realist that, that paint by the curbside—I could have VIP parking. I said, like, this could be like you know, everybody was looking around. And I, was like, I don't know what does this paint mean to who. And then at the same time, a traffic warden was walking past and I just said, can I park here? He was like, of course you can. I was like, well, where is this information? He's like, oh, it's two streets down the road on a sign as you come into the zone. I was like, well, that's no good to anyone. That's like, you know, I want, you know, I want meter by meter information because it means that, you know, a ticket or not. So I basically walked into the event at VIP parking and I felt pretty cool about this, right? So then I was watching the most incredible show. It was like Cirque du Soleil. People were risking their lives, nearly breaking their necks. And I just didn't see any of the concert because I was just sort of seeing the visualization of data against a you know, digital twin of data on the <laughs> third time. And so I kind of came out after, after watching it and I went home and I was like, "Right, wow, there's got to be this information in the council websites. So I went through all the 32 local authorities and there's also City of London, which is the 33rd and then Transport for London is also the 34th. So it's 34 local authorities working as one. So that's why London might be the last place in, in the world to become smart because of the complexity of the politics. Exactly, yeah. But anyway, so I went online and I was just appalled there was like some information on a parking website from the council which is like an old pdf from like you know 1960 where it had some highlighter around it just saying cpz cam or something and i was like my god this is their version of digital it was just a pdf scanned on an ftp site yeah and i was like so then i basically started to collect all these pdf zones and at the time I was working in an advertising agency, I was a creative. And one night I was getting fed off my job and there was these big architects sort of the tables across in the advertising agency and a nice colour printer. So at the end of my research of collecting all these zones, I started to print off all, all the, the zones at the right format and cut it out and make up a map. <laughs> and there's like thousands of zones, right? But I started with central London and one of the project managers walked by. And it's was like 8 p.m. And I had this like map of London noise zones. He's like, What on earth are you doing? And I was like, This is my escape plan. <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> and so he was like, Okay, kind of walked on, sort of like looking like oh, Dan's having some mental issues. Anyway, so I basically then realized that there was no CPZ zones digitized. So then I got on my bike. I couldn't trust the data because it was so bad. So I cycled around all the zones and started checking them all off, and then drawing it on <gasps> my own, <laughs> my own Google map tool, drawing map tool, and then stuck it into an app. And the whole world was go green or red, yes or no. If you can park on yellow lines, because it was called yellow line parking at the time. And then it got downloads, kind of became like the hackers' guide to to the curbside in London. So people were like, very like this app. It tells you you can do this inside hack to the curbside. Then it got into the Evening Standard, and then I pitched it to a load of the all the parking. Departments of London, and they looked at me like I was a lunatic. They're basically, yeah. their business is to make money or to manage parking enforcement offices and make money from enforcement. And yeah. I was the guy coming along trying to go, here's the data to create better information to make sure people can get to the destination without being fined and reduce pollution. And at that meeting, there was a guy from BT. He was in charge of the fleet there, and it's a big fleet. It's 40,000 fleets, so not a small job. 8,000 operating in London, and he had a £3.6 million parking problem in London. He was getting fines of £3.6 million, and he had a million-pound apartment outside London processing all of the claims. So it was four, basically £4.5 million a year processing parking fines from 8,000 fleet. And he said, can I have your data into my system, please? Because this would help my drivers. And I was kind of <laughs> like, okay. I was like, here's the opportunity. That's just the problem and the value there.
0: Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about. You know, who has the problem? Because the government surely don't, they don't believe they have the problem. Of course, they own it. But that's a completely different story. Well, it's okay. You started cycling around, <laughs> making all the notes. At what point did you decide, okay, this, there has to be a scalable, scalable way. So kind of that's... What did you do to make this a product that, or a solution that, that delivers the impact that you aspire for to make parking forgettable?
1: <laughs> yeah. So parking will never be forgettable if it's a crowdsourced route. So if a private company is trying to do it, it's not authoritative and it doesn't provide accountability. So I knew that I could be an okay curbside map guidance tool but to make parking forgettable, you need to be authoritative, and to be authoritative, you need to work with the local authorities. Yeah. So that was the route, and it was always going to be the hardest route, you know. And that was working with local authorities, and we built a system with three local authorities, which was to help them digitize and manage their regulation maps, and it helped speed up the digitization significantly. It helped control the change management much more efficiently by eighty-three percent. And it's starting to save them an awful lot of money now because how sort of rapid it is to sort of do that. So really, I was always like, if you give the cities the well, they'll create the best water. And that's what we need. We need that relationship. So give the bells to people and then you can then start selling the water and the water will be pure and people will want it. It's good for you. So. Really, that was the sort of the area. So I kind of knew, like, you know, if you look at City Mapper, they tapped into an API, which was from the transport agencies. And that was already a standardized data set. So they had an easy gig in terms of just pulling in some APIs and obviously making a great job of it. So we had to do the TFL part, which is the platform that does the end-to-end process for the city. So digitization allows them to manage it. It There's the public consultation, the feedback loops, all the regulatory stuff, because it's legally binding maps in the UK. And the UK didn't have any maps. Everyone thought, oh, you're going to pull in a map and just stick it into your app. I was like, no, no, there are no maps. So when I was speaking to investors, they just assumed, and everyone everyone is a parking expert, especially in the investment industry. And I was like, no, no, guys, there is no maps. We are making the maps. We are transforming the streets into digital infrastructure. And so then we use this like you know fleets driving around. We use the machine learning turning the curbside into a GIS file, and then using object detection on the signs then to do a to put signs to lines. And we can do like thousands of kilometers now, so rapid data capture, and that's the way we can make it scalable. So now we've got the UK, and now we can look look international now, and we can work with like countries or we can work with cities. And cities we can go deep, countries we can go wide. So it's just sort of it's that relationship between the two, which is quite exciting.
0: Fascinating. So what was the hardest nut to crack in this? Is that the building a relationship with the government? Is it, it kind of convincing people or was it a technology challenge?
1: There's not been one easy route in what I've done, to be honest. It's like Working in the cities is extremely hard, extremely slow. So that has been uh, so raising cash off the other tech. Is, it's not sexy. VCs want a quick... Return in, they want to pound in, equals whatever, five pound out. So this is like, you know, we're building a platform where we're pulling in maps or making maps, pulling in maps. we Then do, we've done, like, so the POCs we've had to do, so we're pulling in all types of IoT, uh, information of things from anything. So we've done, we did the world's first payment, connected car payment system in Westminster in 2015, We've done the world's first sort of hardware sensors on the street, taking payments by Bluetooth in Harrogate. We've got the largest deployment of sensors in the world now in the UK. There's some big things we've had to do to sort of just keep on pushing forward, educating, and everyone thinks what we've done there. One innovation point is the end story, but it's just a chapter in terms of us getting to the next chapter to get to the end of the book. So, wow. so yeah, we have a very, you know, to make coffee forgettable, but then ultimately underneath that, you need... You know, a complete ecosystem working uh, to support that. And there wasn't, as I said, there wasn't the data, there wasn't the education, there wasn't the, really the supply chain set up. So having to sort of like orchestrate that, educate it, manage it, create it, that's everywhere has been a unbelievable challenge. So, I can imagine,
0: I, yeah. Well, I mean, you started with, I'm not afraid of a big challenge. And I think everybody can understand. That you are not, indeed. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, imagine you would go to another country. You know, you bridge the pond or the. What is it? Yeah, the. You cross the channel. You come to France. Yeah. You come to the Netherlands. Whatever. How long will it take then? I mean, will it take you exactly the same time to just go through all those hoops again?
1: No, because every part of our internal workings, We every go live for a city, we refine it so we get quicker. Every time we map, we go faster. Every time we ingest it, process it, we go quicker. So we have all these metrics to make sure we can start to scale. And so we are now, yeah, whereas like London, where we map London, as I said, that was 14,000 kilometers. We used LIDAR at the time, which was a three centimeter digital point cloud which is unbelievable data, you know, so it's this 3D, beautiful visualization of the metaverse, essentially, metaverse of London, and that probably took about I remember, six months or something, and we learned so much along that way. But there are digital twins of cities which we can post-process their maps, which isn't a problem. So there are some countries with great coverage so you know we can do large cities now in a couple of weeks and process that and in a month have that live yeah. whereas before that would take an awful long time so it really depends on different different countries have different levels of data and sure. different partners who are already doing some digital twins as well so it's pretty scalable now we kind of it is down to the yeah. unit economics
0: let me make a small interruption here dan just made an excellent remark about the approach that i took to create defensible differentiation doing the hard thing first starting small learning from every step and then finding ways to scale it beyond that they've made a big effort to get all the players in the game on board and transform with them as they made progress to grow ownership and momentum and this is a typical trade remarkable SaaS businesses master they sell the idea and not the product to get the right partners on board they focus on the essence and then create new value possibilities at various levels of society this creates momentum for them and you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can grab a free Kindle version on my website. Go to valueinspiration.com and download it from there. Back to the interview. Yeah, you've been in this game now for about 10 years. So what always fascinates me, of course, we, start, we, we talked about the problem. Then we moved towards the product. Actually, this morning I received an email again from Strategizer. And one of the big things that I've also always learned as well is that the differentiation or like like what sets you apart is often not so much connected to those two things. And where you become indefensible almost is like a the value proposition, how clear that is, but on the other end also the business model that you can, can create behind this. Mm. With this particular thing, you could go wild on business models, I would say.
1: That is the problem. It's a luxury to have, right? And also along the way, we've had to raise cash based upon a model that we didn't really want to get invested in just to prove that there was money there. So again, it's all these like incremental POCs and proof of commercialization, whereas the, the sum, the platform is far greater than all of these proof of commercialization sort of strands. So. we're on this journey and you know every day we keep on unlocking more opportunity but it's all about being extremely focused right now before we did raise grant funding because we had to because you know the VCs found this a very difficult story to get their head around and so those did create sort of a drain on resources for the company to sort of leverage the cash required to get to the next part of the platform's capabilities but now the platform has got those capabilities, and we have a treasure trove. we kind of that platform is the most sort of rigid platform in the in the North Sea, and now we can start drilling for more data or oil. The rock yeah, the, exactly. The <laughs>
0: so, That's um, what it's, it's all about.
1: Yeah, it's taken a long time, but it's been we're now the most sort of stable two sided platform where cities are engaged buying into it, and the data is being consumed by fleets and drivers who yeah. need to optimize everything.
0: I remember one of my earlier podcasts with, for example, Aerobotics initially Mm. started as taking photos of farms and then ai came along and they started to understand okay what trees are ill what trees need more water so that became like a data set that was extremely valuable for farmers but then it also turned out that it became an extremely important data set for insurance companies for example to ensure yield so
1: the ev revolution now is great for us because everyone's very busy putting plugs in places the cities can't keep up with a demand to change the regulation to fit, to make it an EV bay. And also yeah. drivers are kind of like, you know, stressed out because they, they haven't got, you know, plugs in the right places and range anxiety. So, you know, last year, the EV industry, this is not a fault of their own, but they've got a lot of funding. Right? There's so much funding in EV and they celebrated 25,000 plug points in the UK, right? The total of the UK. We need to be deploying about 40,000 plugs a month. And they can't because of the city's analog processes. So they see, we're that digital lubricant, the grease that can help unlock the curbside to help all three stakeholders, the cities, the operators, and the drivers, all have that interaction together. So that's an exciting sort of thing happening this year for us. Oh,
0: that is just one that that you could possibly think of. (laughs) It's, (laughs) It's fascinating what you can think of beyond that. What has been a decision that you had to take that appeared to be really important? As I said, I
1: think the innovation funding that we had kind of took us into different streams last year or over the past three years, and it stretched the company. You know, we're kind of you know, we're a team of 45 people, but we're doing the job of like 500 sometimes to compare the productivity. So we did turn away sort of the off-street car park asset management business, which is, you know, utilisation, wayfinding, barrier entry, ticketing, all the sort of slightly functional stuff within the parking industry which we went into because that, we can leverage that innovation, which we've proven in a commercial environment, and then start applying it to the on-street. Because on-street is always deprived of innovation because it's always public sector. And it's always deprived because the only people who innovate, well, they don't, people don't innovate in the curbside because it's just the cashless parking companies who are all benchmarked together and all undercutting each other. So innovation at the curbside is low. Innovation on in the off-street is quite high-ish if you compare it to the off-street, on-street. So, we had a healthy business there, which was, but we turned our back last year just to focus on becoming that sort of digital operating system of the curbside and that digital infrastructure layer and working with the cities and working with the API into fleets and logistics. So, turning away some of our business, you know, it's then that's kind of has been healthy it's been a lot easier ship to steer now because we're still two-sided and that's kind of schizophrenic in its own right and you know with this with GovTech, with b2b with b2c that still has its issues but it's a lot more simpler now
0: what have you seen as a result of that decision what has become um, easier just,
1: just the focus i think some people internally i suppose just the strategy seems clearer even though it's the same strategy, but just that sort of execution and sort of the communication and comms. So it just helps people rally behind it more. So we do get the momentum and the support and then the productivity as a result.
0: True. Yeah, I think the company has become much more centered around like what it really tries to achieve rather than kind of all the things that you can see around you that possibly need help as well. (laughs) I can see that. I can see that. So what have you learned in the selling process? I mean, going to market with it, And actually creating a business model that brings in momentum in terms of revenue, money flowing.
1: Even before you think about selling, it's just about the education. Ah, And, you know, every day I'm having to educate and I'm becoming a parrot, you know, which is fine. Every founder is a parrot, essentially, because it's all about education. And you tell people about the art of the possible, you know, people think that the existing cash parking companies is the, the, the answer to parking. It's almost, this is a curse. It's the blocker. You know, they get their hands on a contract and don't let anyone else in they stop innovation happening. But people think, you know, if the cities go, ah, oh, parking's sold, we've got a cashless parking company. No, no, you just have a till. Like a till isn't smart. It doesn't give anything to the city. You know, it doesn't give anything to the driver. You're never going to get to car, your carbon zero targets with just a cash till. So, you know, that's where we kind of have to come in and unpick that and start to sort of educate the people about the art of the possible and especially the art of the possible, bring, answering three questions, which is where can I park, <laughs> is there a space and can I pay? And that is like, that blows people's minds. Like, oh my God, that's like, that's a whole nother level of what's possible. And then what i found found, we've sold into cities or tried to sell They've kind of almost gone, my God, you've just kind of realized we've nearly seen the nirvana. We're going to basically not do anything for a couple of years and go and redo our discovery projects about the art of the possible and go to our think tanks and go to the research groups and the planners and go, okay, if we think like this, what can we achieve? So it always stalls the sales sometimes because you've just told them about the art of the possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on That's on the tech side. And ultimately on the sales side for the drivers, there's nothing more powerful and showing someone what the data can do and just go and put up to their face and just go and that's it. So, you know, we've just built the next generation sort of driver app. It's true A to B journeys. It takes you right to the parking space, which Google can't do. And the power of that is extremely significant. And it's, you know, if that parking space is full, we'll take you to the next four. So you have five times more chance. And the visualization of that data as you're driving along, that last meter navigation is extremely powerful. So the last meter navigation visuals, it sells itself really. Then it's about have they got the technical ability to ingest that API into their systems? If they haven't, they probably haven't. They're going to wait till next year for the budget to be signed off so they can start to integrate it into the product roadmap. So there is an education process, but again, as I said, the EV revolution is driving that thinking forward because of the dependency of a vehicle against the infrastructure, which is what we can support.
0: Fascinating, and I mean, I've heard it so often, of course. I mean, the companies that I got on this podcast they are all doing things that haven't been done before, you know, there is no, <laughs> talking about this, there is no map. Literally. <laughs> yeah. So education is, of course, something that is extremely needed, but also super expensive. So I, I applaud for also the kind of the clarity that you create and also around these super simple three questions because everybody mm. gets that. Yeah. Even if you're not even driving a car, but you kind of maybe sitting next to the driver because you're going on a family trip, you know the stress. Yes. And I mean, I've heard so many stories already about great APIs, where it all came alive after creating a fantastic use case around the last mile. Mm. Because people, for some reason, you know, they have to be creative or super visual in order to grasp it. And then they suddenly get it.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast,
0: lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I wrote a book about the 10 traits that define remarkable software businesses. You having created a software company yourself, what do you believe are the secrets to create something remarkable that also has lasting impact
1: the obvious thing is always it's got to solve a problem but people yeah. don't know the problem in front of them half the time so it's about the storytelling to tell them about a different world that is possible and you know I'm visual I'm very visual I'm a visual person so the way I do it to my advantage is create strong visuals to land that promise, you know, what the world looks like, the f- futurism, of mm-hmm. making it tangible. So a lot of people are not creative, sadly. They can't picture what is in your head. And if you're deeply creative or deeply visual, you, you see it and then you can get frustrated that people aren't getting it. And that's just that, that, you know, I've learned to appreciate that. I mean, my background was a creative director and writing ads and stuff, so mm-hmm. I'm very visual. But it's not until, and I've always learned with the clients that you have to literally spoon feed them almost the exact replica of the ad via stock shots or something, just to go, this is how I can look. If you just did an old scamp that we used to draw, people are, I don't get it. And it's like, okay. And the people the mind, the, the, the cognitive mindset is always gonna kind of very short and extremely lazy perhaps or distracted people just want this a quick fix of endorphins <laughs> unless you put it right up into their face uh, people just don't get it anymore so ultimately so a mix of that which is being extremely visual with what we're doing and then we've picked this problem which is gigantic and there's three problems uh we're bringing it into one and it's one of those things where ha- not having this kind of data in your car will be like driving without a seatbelt. it'll be absolutely stupid. Because it's your time, money, and the environment that you're killing.
0: Well, talking about being bold, but at least people get it. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I love it. I completely agree with it. It's super memorable. I completely agree on the storytelling part. I think we don't do enough visuals. and That is really where where you get something that people, it converts you. And yeah, it gets you. And then that's where I mean, desire like starts.
1: Re- religion is extremely visual. Like, you know, the Catholic Church is very shiny. Like, it was shiny for a purpose. You know, it makes it aspirational. You know, so you've got to create your own religion.
0: Love it. Create your own religion. Yeah. <laughs> True. So, talked about what creates a remarkable software business. Talked about the learning. Being an entrepreneur now for a good 10 years, what do and what don't would you share with other tech entrepreneurs that either aspire a journey like you or that want to, yeah, kind of shake their business up a little bit?
1: What would I share?
0: Well, what advice would you give, do or don't?
1: Don't deviate from the thing that gets you up. I think, you know, if you are feel extremely passionate about this thing that's going to drive you, you got to make sure, you know, it takes a long time Time to be an overnight success. And you know, it could be 10 years of you being the parrot. So make sure if you are the parrot, you're still believing in what you're saying and you haven't been deviated by a shareholder's agenda. So just you'll stick to it. And it's okay to say no, you know, and hopefully the door should open, the right door should open from the right person if you say no, and then it opens up that opportunity. So yeah, stick hard to what you believe in. It's very easy to get distracted by different types of money or different opportunities. So it's just that you'll be extremely uh, focused, really. So that's, you know, and that's hard. It's very hard because sometimes you're in predicaments where, you know, there aren't many choices. True. So it's unrealistic in a way, but you have to sort of you know, go back to that sort of guiding principle. Yeah. There's, there's, a, do, there's, a, do, there's a do and a don't there, I suppose, yeah.
0: <laughs> it is. Well, it's the same, almost the same side of the same coin, but it starts with the kind of this great vision and then to have the grit to stick to it. I like what you're saying because it's so true that... It's the shareholder that typically gets you off that because Mm. they want more short-term gains because they have a different agenda. And that's extremely hard to do.
1: And also, I think, yeah, well, I mean, my old background as a writing commercials, I'd get a 99 no's until one of my ideas was made. And I think that was a great proving ground psychologically. It made me extremely, you know, resilient to no's. And in the world of investment, you know, you're going to hear a million no's from people. And there'll be that one yes that makes a difference. So just don't let the no's get you down because that one yes will be the one that helps you. So, yeah, it's ignore the point.
0: Strong point. There's so many people that I speak to that indeed talk about the 80, the 90, the 200 no's. Is that a journey that you just have to go through in order to kind of toughen up? Or is there something where you say, okay, if I'd known this
1: before, I would have done it differently? I kind of did a back of fag packet of what I needed back in the day. It wasn't far off considering I wasn't sort of I came into this whole industry completely new and taking on investment as a new thing. So what would I have done differently? I think what we've done is you know, we've learned about the value of doing things. We've learned the cost, the, the results, where the weaknesses are. So the journey we have been on has just made our wounds, which are essential for being a robust company it's made our wounds extremely, we appreciate our wound, wounds, we've looked at our wounds, and we've learned from our wounds, and so trying to take an easy path, I don't think is possible, or it doesn't, it's not healthy, I think it's good to make mistakes, or it's good to make a choice, at least you made that choice, right, so when people say, what would I do differently, what we're trying to do is near, was near impossible, now we've made it possible, you know, so we just had to do anything we could, and we made mistakes along the way, but we are stronger for it.
0: Yeah, and that has, of course, also had to do with the point around education, because mm. the fact that the market, that the government, that the businesses don't understand what you're talking about is because they haven't seen it. On the investor side, it's the same thing. Yeah. And of course, all these things that have not been done before are super
1: risky. The more yeses you get, it's more of a copycat idea as well. But kind of like you know doing an ironing app is a good idea, but you can kind of <laughs> it's replicable and so therefore I'm more at risk in the long run. Exactly,
0: exactly. Well, thanks for this. It was uh, super inspiring. Thank you for telling the story. Fascinating. You're definitely not afraid of a challenge. (laughs) And yeah, I thank you also for sharing the advice and the wisdom that you gained over time. If there's anything that the audience could do for you, what would you ask?
1: (laughs) So you have a global audience, right? Yeah. If you know city mayors, if you want to take the politics out of parking, if you want to buy an EV, but you can't because of the curbside is restricting you. So get in touch, open doors. This is about kicking down city doors. Knocking politely doesn't work. So if you have a sledgehammer in your local town, (laughs) or city to get to the mayor's desk, because they want to be heroes, mayors want legacies. And what we're doing can leave legacies for mayors, you know, so that's definitely one thing. And then, yeah, I mean, if you're a fleet, automotive who wants their cars to be more enjoyable and cities to be more livable. That's the you know anyone out there who wants that, come and get in touch.
0: So where do they go to find out more about your company and say hi to you?
1: Well you can go to appyway.com and then they can write to me Dan at appyway.com. Super simple. Thank you Dan. Thank you very much. It was a
0: pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Dan. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Dan Hubert, founder and CEO of Appyway. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode.